amen to that. <laughs> All right. God, we thank you so much just for your grace, unfathomable, rich, wide, deep grace, God, that gives us such incredible hope because you, Lord, are our living hope. And we thank you for that. And God, as we come today to your word, we pray that you open our hearts, God, so that we can receive this hope that you want to unleash in our life, God. May we respond to you and respond to your word in a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wanted to be an astronaut? <laughs> no? <laughs> well, I was recently watching the movie Hidden Figures, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way. And in the movie, there's a scene that depicts the time when John Glenn became the first American to orbit around the Earth, traveling at speeds over 17,000 miles an hour. I mean, that's nine times faster than the average bullet. Shoot, I remember going 100 miles an hour once. That's a story for another time, though. <laughs> but check this out. I don't know if you realize it, but as you sit in your seats right now, you actually are traveling faster than the speed of sound. Did you know that? Because the earth at its axis goes at a rate of 1,040 miles an hour. Not only that, but as we earthlings orbit around the sun, we fly through space at a rate of 66,000 miles an hour. I'm telling you, you're more than an astronaut. You're a regular superhero. It's true. Now, here's the thing. There are many things in life that we are just... We just sort of take them for granted. We're very unaware of much of what's happening in and around us. We fail to thank God for everyday miracles. Like right now, in your body, there are literally trillions of chemical reactions that are going on every minute, every day, every single day of your life. Not only that, your heart it beats 100,000 times a day, pumping six quarts of blood through your veins, your arteries, and your capillaries. If you were to put all those pieces together end by end, did you know that that would stretch around the entire earth two and a half times? Wow. If you were to write out your personal genome sequence, it would be a three billion word book. I mean, literally, my friend, you are a walking miracle. You really are. We are surrounded by miracles that for the most part, we're just sort of unaware of. You might say we're kind of clueless even. So today we're going to talk about how Jesus brings hope to the unaware. And what I'm hoping is that maybe we begin to clue in a little bit as to what Jesus is doing and also begin to respond to him. We're going to walk through a story today, walk right into it, of how Jesus and his disciples went to the wedding at Canaan and of Galilee, and Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, speaking of turning water into wine, there was this Irish priest who was driving to New York, <laughs> and he got pulled over for speeding. And as the officer approached him, he smelled alcohol on his breath, and so he asked him, Sir, have you been drinking? And the priest replied, Only water. To which the officer looked down and saw the wine bottle. He says, well, why do I smell wine then? And the priest looked at the bottle and said, good Lord, he's done it again. 
So let's take a look at our passage. <laughs> Grab your message notes out of your program. And if you have a Bible, we're going to look at John chapter 2. I just want to mention, if you don't have a Bible, you know, Owen, we want to give you one as a gift for free. And so just grab one in the lobby on your way out today. It's in the bookshelf right out there. So we're going to start with just a little bit of background. I want you to think about the fact that this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, as you record in John, you'll watch the story unfold. Just three days prior, it's just the beginning. He's called a few disciples to himself. There's been no miracles, no sermons on the mount. I mean, this is just the very, very beginning as we walk into this story. John 2, 1 through 11, it says this. Let's take a look. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign in Cana and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I must admit to you, there are a lot of really interesting things in this passage that kind of make me scratch my head. I mean, if you think about it, this is the kickoff to Jesus' ministry, where he's telling people who he is, what he's about, and what he's come to do. And so, what does he do? Does he heal the sick? Does he feed 5,000 people? Does he raise someone from the dead? No. Jesus provides beverages for a wedding. And not only that, but it kind of seems like he does it a little bit reluctantly, you know, kind of like his Jewish mother kind of urges him and nags him into it. I mean, honestly, it's very odd. I mean, it kind of sounds a little bit like this. Jesus' mom calls him over. Jesus, come to your mother. <laughs> this poor couple, they're out of wine. You need to make a little wine here, son. The crowd's getting edgy. Your cousin Moyle's depressed. We need some wine. It's time to live up to your potential, son. After all, you're the chosen one, my boy. And who knows? Maybe some young lady will notice, and you can finally give me some grandchildren before I die. <laughs> okay, that's probably not really what happened. <laughs> Actually, it's in the Greek. It's in there. No, I'm just kidding. But that's kind of the sort of the feel that we get from this passage. It sort of feels like that. But honestly, as I look deeper and I started to study this, there are actually some amazing things that we can discover here that really reveal how Jesus unleashed hope into this situation. 
So we're going to start with a little cultural background. It has specifically to do with the way that Jewish weddings were in that day. You see, this was a huge community event where people would come. The whole community would be involved. And oftentimes relatives and other people that were close to the family would travel across many hours in order to get there. Everyone was invited, and wine really was the focal point of the wedding. See, wine represented joy and blessing to the family. It was so important, and to run out of wine would cause incredible shame to the family. In fact, in some cases, it might actually come to legal recourse where someone could charge the family with an inability to take care of their daughter or to not provide hospitality to the guests. And so when the wine ran out, this was a huge, big deal. And so for Jesus, you see, to step into that situation was incredibly compassionate. And it really says a lot about his character. And so this is our, one of our first points that we can find in this passage, is that Jesus shows concern over simple things. You can write that on your outline. He shows concern over simple things. You know, when we look at miracles, oftentimes we focus more on the miracle than on the miracle worker. You see, the miracle itself wasn't necessarily life-altering, but it certainly helped this family avoid shame and complete discomfort and ridicule and embarrassment. And it's a reminder that Jesus cares for us in all areas of life because he cares about us. There's a great verse in the book of Matthew that reminds us of this. I don't know if you remember, but it's where Jesus is talking about cares and concerns that we have in the world. And in Matthew 6, 26, he says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? See, this is such a great reminder that we're loved cared for and valued by God. And he really delights to help us, even in the simplest things of life. You know, I really like when God answers, you know, simple little prayers. You know, like if I've lost my keys, you know, we get a little desperate sometimes and I just pray and God help me find my keys. Or maybe where I'm just fearful and God, I ask him for courage and he helps to bring courage. Or maybe even just to find a really great parking spot every once in a while. I mean, it's the little things. It's kind of fun to have this gently, friendly dialogue with God that I can invite him into my everyday life and walk with him throughout my day. You know, in this story, there's also incredible, powerful significance that Jesus' first miracle came at a wedding. And that's our second point here. That Jesus gave a sign that solidifies his care for us. His care for us. His first miracle happening at a wedding actually has more significance than we may realize. There's incredible symbolism here that points exactly to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let me tell you a little bit about the ancient Hebrew Jewish wedding. It would begin with something called the Shadukin, which is when the father of the groom would select a bride for his son. I don't know if you remember, but I, um, Abraham did this when he arranged Isaac to marry Rebekah. You remember that in Genesis 24. And then the next part that would happen is something called the Ketubah, which were the commitments that the couple made to one another before they became betrothed. And this would be things like the groom would commit to promise to love and care for his bride to give himself for her, 
to pay the proper price for his bride. And the bride would commit you know, to her dowry, to yield her life, and to keep herself for him only. And then to, betro- to prepare for the betrothal, very interesting, they both participated in, participate in something called the mikvah. Now, the mikvah was something where they immersed individually in water to prepare. It was to prepare for their betrothal. It was a symbol of cleansing. Then they'd appear together under the chuppah, which was this canopy, and they'd publicly express their vows and their intention of becoming married. This is where they'd exchange rings. They would drink a cup of wine, which symbolized uh, the seal of their vows. And then they'd have this year-long betrothal period. And during this time, they were considered to be married, although they lived separately, and they didn't consummate their, their marriage until the whole ceremony had begun a year later. Now, prior to leaving this ceremony under the hoopah, the groom would give his wife something called a matanatim, or a bridal gift, which was considered to be a pledge of his love to remind her during their time apart that he was thinking of her, that he loved her, and that he pledged himself to come back to her to receive her as his bride. During this year of betrothal, the groom's task was to go and prepare a new place for them to live together as husband and wife. And the bride would set herself apart, and she would begin to sew wedding garments and prepare herself for their marriage. The final step of this was something called the nisuin, And it was a time of great anticipation as the bride and her wedding party would wait for the coming of the groom because they did not know the time, the day, or the hour of when he would come. They knew around the time but didn't know the specific hour. That was only known by the father of the groom who gave the final approval for the wedding to begin. And then he would send his son to receive his bride. When the time came, a member of the groom's party would lead the bridegroom to the bride's house. And as he stood in front of the bridegroom, he would shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And then they would sound the shofar. (laughs) And at the sounding of the shofar, the entire wedding processional would go through the streets to the bride's home. And the groomsmen would again set up the chuppah. The couple would finalize their vows under the... Um, with a cup of wine, and the pinnacle of joy was the wedding feast or the marriage supper, and included seven full days of food and wine and music and dance and celebration. And then after the festivities, the groom would take his wife to live together in the full covenant of marriage. Now, for some of you, you recognize the parallel that are spoken of over and over again in scripture between Jesus and his bride, the church. In fact, the apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. It says this, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And then he says something fascinating that you wouldn't even see coming. He says, this is a great mystery. But it's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. See, Paul says that the marriage union, union, when a man and woman come together as one, is a reflection of how Jesus and the church are one. 
And again, we see many times in Scripture where Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom and his followers, his people whom he's redeemed are considered and talked about, the church is talked about as the bride of Christ. And just like in the wedding ceremony that we just spoke of, God the Father has given his son, Jesus Christ, his bride, the church. We're told that we have been redeemed with a price, not of silver or of gold, but with Jesus' very life. We are both immersed into the waters of baptism. At the Last Supper, Jesus drank a cup of wine, a new covenant representing his blood, saying that he will not drink it again until he gets to heaven at the marriage feast. Jesus says that he's left us with a pledge, the Holy Spirit of God, who seals this commitment as we wait for him. And he's telling us that he's going to prepare a place for us. And that we're to wait for his return at a time that only the Father knows. And when they comes and when he returns, there'll be a shout from the heavenly archangel and a blast from a trumpet. And we will be united with him and celebrate our union together at the marriage feast, which is described in the book of Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. And so what started out looking like kind of this simple party trick has turned into this incredibly rich, beautiful, powerful picture of hope. There's this level of comfort a level of certainty and intimacy that comes from this analogy that I don't want you to miss, see? You see, Jesus is sending a message to, for you to fully embrace that you are his beloved. Now, gentlemen, <laughs> let me just say I get it, okay? It's hard to wrap your arms around the idea of being the bride of Christ. You know, to be honest, you... Picturing some of you in a wedding gown just gives me the willies, all right? <laughs> but don't miss the main point, <laughs> and that's this. We all want to be loved, valued, needed. Jesus cares about you. He has your back. He is committed to you. He's your main dude. Feel better now? <laughs> You see, and so to me, it totally makes sense that Jesus' first miracle, the unveiling of his glory, is that he turns purification water into wine, which represents his blood that purifies us from sin. Jesus' first miracle, you see, displays his glory and foretells of everything, of who he is and what he's going to do. But there's more that we can learn from this passage so we're going to look at specifically how did the different people present at the wedding respond to Jesus? And I think there's a lot to learn from this. The first response is Mary's response, which is faith and anticipation. Faith and anticipation. 
you ever wondered what must have gone through Mary's mind? I mean, here's Jesus. He's growing up. I mean, her very pregnancy was a total miracle. Angels come and they tell her of his significance. Anna and Simeon say that he's the hope of Israel. And Jesus, he was a good son. But so far, he's not quite exactly what she expected him to be, right? But recently, you know, he was baptized by John the Baptist, who said he was the Lamb of God. He's begun to collect some disciples. I mean, maybe now, maybe now he will unveil himself as the Messiah. John 2, 1 to 5. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, we kind of have to get this out of the way. (laughs) Jesus called his mom woman. All right. Uh, if I'd have told my Italian mama and called her woman, <laughs> she'd have taken a wooden spoon and smacked me to the lips. I mean, what's the matter, you? You know, right there. Actually, probably not. Sorry, mom. <laughs> but she probably would have slammed some cabinets just to let me know that she was not pleased. You see, this term woman here is actually a term of very deep respect that was used. It was common. Kind of lose a little bit in the translation here. We know this as well as, you know, you can see when Jesus later is actually dying on the cross and he speaks to his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. Talking about his disciple, John, whom he was entrusting to her as he died. He's not disrespecting his mother. But it may indicate a little bit of change in their relationship as he moves from being her son to her Lord. Now, what's interesting about Mary's request is that Mary's never seen Jesus do a miracle before, right? I mean, unless, you know, he'd snap his fingers to clean his room, which probably did not happen. But we see Mary look to Jesus, believing that he can provide wine for the wedding. Mary has incredible faith in her son, Jesus. And when Jesus responds to her that it's not quite his time, For her then to just address the servants and say, do whatever he tells you, we see Mary's faith grow to anticipation, which is a whole different level of faith, believing not only that he can do it, but that he will do it. And as far as Jesus responding that it wasn't his time yet, this again is a little bit trouble with the original language and the translation here, because the actual words, if you translate them literally from the original language, it says, What to me in you? You're like, what? Well, that was actually a very common phrase used at that time. And what it meant is it it was to indicate a misunderstanding. It meant you misunderstand. My idea is not your idea. Our ideas are different. Which, if you you think about it, that totally makes sense. Because Mary, thinking about Jesus, probably had a lot of the same ideas as most people did. Right? That... As Messiah, he'd claim the throne of David, he'd throw the Romans out, and then issue in this prosperous time for Israel. And so when Mary says, hey, what about a miracle? Jesus is saying, no, you misunderstand what I'm here to do and when I'm going to do it. And so Mary's response, again, it isn't actually pushy, and it's not assuming, but she 
indicates confident trust that Jesus knows exactly what to do in the situation. And in many ways, you know, I kind of wonder if Mary's response of trust and anticipation maybe invited the miracle. Because we know in the Bible it says that God loves faith. And that faith activates his power. And so hope is unleashed in Mary toward the fulfilling of a promise. The next response is the servant's response, which is duty and indifference. Duty and indifference. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the servants here. I mean, realistically, think about it. Jesus is just invited. He's an invited guest to the party. And when he asks the servants to do something, they actually do it. I mean, they weren't obligated to do that. And the request to fill these jars with water and then to serve water to the the master of ceremonies, you know, in place of wine, that's a little bit risky there. Yet their response ultimately is a little puzzling still. Let's look at it. John 2, 6 to 9. Standing by, there were six stone water jars, each used for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions, and when the master of ceremonies tasted that water, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. So I want you to try to picture yourself there, okay, in the middle of this story. In fact, here's a picture. This is an excavation of a first century home in Jerusalem. You can see these large stone uh, jars that would be filled with water, and so here we are, and we're servants, and, and we're, everyone's panicking. I mean, there is no wine, and no one knows what to do. And then Jesus tells you to go fill six of these stone jars with water, which, by the way, let me point out, you just don't go to the faucet and turn it on to do that, right? That meant several trips to the town well, back and forth, bucket by bucket, to fill these jars with 120 gallons of water. Then Jesus tells you to take a ladle and bring it to the master of ceremonies. And somewhere in that process, the water turns to wine. Now, I anticipate that at that moment, you'd get something like, what just happened? How? Oh, my Lord, my God. Someone falling to their knees, you know? Something like that. Thank you, Jesus. But we don't get anything. Silence. All right, so we weren't there, right? And, and maybe perhaps later, some of the servants come back. They thank Jesus. But what it says at the end of this story, if you look in verse 12, is that Jesus, his disciples, and his family go back to Capernaum for a few days. The servants don't follow. And so it's very puzzling. Duty and indifference. The only hope released in this situation is that the relief of the crisis is over ever taken jesus for granted let's look at the next response the host and the wedding party's response which is to be unaware and assumptive unaware and assumptive okay so the masters of ceremonies he takes the ladle he takes a sip and behold it is the finest wine he has ever tasted. So he calls the groom over to give him a huge compliment. You know, he's totally unaware of what just happened. He is the first recipient 
of a miracle from the creator of the universe. And he has no clue. So he gives total credit to the groom. John 2.10. He says to him, a host always serves the best wine first, he says. And then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. And then there's this interesting response by the groom, okay? Now, you might expect him to say something like, uh, what? (laughs) I mean, I didn't think we'd even have enough wine, and the stuff we bought was from Caleb's camel supply. Wasn't that great? (laughs) Or maybe he'd respond like Orson Welles, right? We will serve no wine before it's time. (laughs) He says nothing. He just sort of takes credit for it, which is really puzzling. It's kind of like he's entitled or he deserves it. And again, this is just speaking from silence, but we just don't get any details here. Perhaps when it was all said and done, okay, the groom, the bride, they say, what? What? That did happen. And they go investigate it. They go to Jesus. They say, thank you for this incredibly significant gift. But it doesn't say that. And just about every other time when Jesus does a miracle, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed, you always get the response to what people responded when Jesus broke into their world because the response matters. Something incredibly unusual happens. Something amazing happens. And the master of ceremonies doesn't have the perception to recognize that God is present. And the groom knows that something has happened. And yet he just received the gift, but he never received the giver of the gift. And does that ever sound familiar? I mean, you ever done something really significant for someone (laughs) and they never even acknowledged it? Or worse yet, maybe they gave credit to someone else or they took credit for it themselves. They missed the whole thing. You see, the only hope that was unleashed in this situation for them was the joy of the party, which was temporal, and it didn't last. And so last, we have the response of the disciples, which was belief and commitment. Belief and commitment. So as we mentioned, just three days prior to this, Jesus had called together a few disciples, Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, and they were following him. They get invited to this wedding, Jesus takes them. And you got to think about this. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot that warranted them really following him. There was no miracles. There was, you know, nothing spectacular that happened. No great sermons. Just John the Baptist had said, you know, you really ought to follow this guy. And then Jesus invited them. So they're going to the party. They're having a great time. Jesus' mother calls him over. They follow Jesus over. And then they witness something absolutely unbelievable. And their response is very important. John 2.11 tells us this miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. These disciples, they'd been following Jesus. They'd heard things about him. You know, they, they knew he was special, but there were still, I mean, you got to figure, there were still doubts in their mind. They were wondering, who is this guy and what exactly is he going to do? But see, their hearts their hearts were incredibly open. Their eyes were watching him carefully, everything he was doing. They were searching and then 
God appeared. <laughs> and they witnessed the creator transform water molecules into wine. And they believed. And their belief resulted in extraordinary commitment and allegiance to Jesus. See, they gave up their pride. They gave up their agenda. They gave up their expectations, their obligations. They unhitched themselves from their world and completely attached themselves to Jesus. And yes, in great human fashion, right, as we all do, they stumbled in doubt during the process. They tripped in disappointment. They fell into distraction and discouragement. But ultimately, their true north was to follow Jesus. They believed in him. They committed themselves to him. And they found true hope in him. You see, the hope unleashed in the disciples was that they found their hope in Jesus. And it's because of that hope that we're here today. Their response to Jesus still affects us today. And so here's the main point of this message, and I hope that you hear it. And that's that the hope unleashed in your life directly is linked to how you respond to Jesus. And I'm not talking about how you responded to him maybe 20, 30, maybe more years ago. Right now, this week, in this moment, how are you responding to what Jesus is doing in and around you? What is your response? What is my response to Jesus? Is it faith and anticipation? Is it duty and indifference? Is it being unaware and, and assumptive? Or is it to believe and to commit yourself to him right now hope unleashed in your life is directly linked to how you respond to jesus let's pray lord jesus we want to recognize the fact that you're with us even in this time right now and we thank you god as we sing songs about your incredible grace and the hope that you give Lord, I pray that you help us to be more aware of the many, many times. God, you say that you are with us always, always. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to see what you are doing, to ask the question, Lord, what are you doing in my life? How can I respond to you? Lord, help us to live an abiding life where we walk in your spirit every day. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.